basement. Well, hey, today we're carrying on in the Gospel of Matthew. Since September, so almost a year ago, we've been going through this book. And in January, we started on uh, perhaps some of Jesus' most well-known teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We started in the Beatitudes. And today we're carrying on in that. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 34, on why your words matter. Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. And this is what Jesus says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the foot of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us this morning through these words? We want to hear from you. And we want to respond in obedience, so open our ears and our hearts to hear from you, we pray in your name. Amen. Now, when we hear these words I just read, it's really easy to feel removed from them. One, we wouldn't really talk like that. We wouldn't swear by those different things that Jesus cites. And most of us don't really make oaths like that. It doesn't really feel like it's something that's necessarily relevant or applicable to us. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is outlining a way of being a human that is only possible by coming into contact with him. And what we're looking at today is this fourth example in six, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And today's is this topic of your words, of the oaths you make and why it matters. See, Jesus is revealing this rightly relatedness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. This is why Jesus isn't simply trying to address sinful actions. He's speaking to the human heart because out of that place, your actions flow out. He's taking you from murder then to contempt, from adultery to lust. He's taking you from the symptoms to the cause, from the bad fruit to the poisonous root. And the reason he does this is because he hasn't simply come to confront sinful actions. He has come to transform human beings into kingdom people. And so one of the ways that we see Jesus doing this in our passage is that first he highlights the old commandment, then he gives us a second one, and he begins to apply this with a practical example. And so in this old commandment, he says in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. When Jesus says this, he is talking about how the Israelites understood the covenant that God had made with them. See, Jesus references the Old Testament. You shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you've sworn. And this isn't actually a specific passage, but a summary. A summary of a common understanding based on a few passages. I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. One of them comes from Leviticus 19, verse 12, where it says, Do not swear falsely by my name, this is the Lord speaking to Israel, and so profane the name of the Lord your God, I am your God. And another one is in Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 and 23. 
if you make a vow to the Lord and your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. So whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Now, central, the central and motivating factor for this command was that truth and honesty were central to God's character. There's no deceit in God and who he is. He is full of truth. He is the source of truth. Therefore, central to the covenant that God makes with his people will also be truth. God is truthful, faithful, honest, and he expects his people to live truthfully and honestly with him, with their neighbors, and with themselves. Truth-telling, then, was central to the story of Scripture. Truth and honesty are the basis for trust, which means that they are the basis for any healthy and flourishing relationship. Now think with me about the nature of truth, honesty, and dishonesty in the first few stories of the Bible. When you look at Genesis, you see both of these examples, and you see what goes wrong with dishonesty, the chaos that it sows. You'll actually see that the assumption for human relationships was that there would be honesty. If you go to Genesis 3, the serpent deceives humanity by misrepresenting the words of God in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam is confronted by God, he doesn't tell the whole truth. Out of this place, relational and spiritual chaos ensues, and the nature of God's relationship is affected by this broken trust in that moment. Now, Abraham, when you go to Genesis 12, you'll see something similar at work. Abraham, when he comes to Egypt, because there's this famine in his land, he lies about his relationship with Sarah. He says, don't tell people you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. He lies out of fear. Now, we aren't told what this does to his marriage, but we do see the damage that it inflicts on the man who tries to marry Sarah. If you carry on in Abraham's family and the story of what happens, you see that lying continues with his grandsons in Jacob and Esau. Jacob tricks his brother Esau with twisted words, and then Jacob the trickster gets tricked himself by his uncle Laban. You see this dishonesty throughout the family. And the relational fallout due to deceit unfortunately carries on in the next generation. When Jacob has his kids, his son, he has 12 of them, and they lie to him about their youngest one, Joseph, saying that he was killed when in reality he was betrayed and sold um, as a slave and taken to Egypt. See, you take honesty out of relationships. You take it out of a culture, and trust is eliminated, and chaos ensues. Without honesty, relationships begin to collapse. Without trust, marriages are hamstrung. Without trust, work partnerships can't move forward. Without trust, friendships fall apart. Without trust, governments are toppled. Truthfulness and honesty are the seedbed for trust. They are central to any good and healthy relationship. And people will treat honesty as if it were just a brick in the wall of a home. I can take it out, 
nothing will happen. It's not a big deal. It's just one brick. But in reality, it's a vital ingredient to the foundation of the home. You take it out of the mix and the foundation will crack. And it may not be immediately apparent because there's, it's under a lot of other things. But eventually, that crack will grow. And the cracks will begin to show themselves above the ground too. And it's against this kind of verbal trickery, this twisting of words, deception and dishonesty, that Scripture commanded honesty and truthfulness. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's highlighting this command to keep their oaths and the significance of honesty. That truck driver was being really honest about how he felt. <laughs> but Jesus does more than just highlight this command and the importance of honesty. Because he's giving his disciples a new command. Do not take an oath at all, he says. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot even make a hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now notice how he starts this. He says, but I say to you, the authority Jesus claims is his own. I say to you. The I in Greek is emphatic. He cites the word of God in the Old Testament. Now he says, but I say to you. And he doesn't justify the basis for it. He doesn't argue for it. There's no reason for it. There's nothing to support it. He doesn't feel that's necessary. His word is sufficient. I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And through his words, he's not canceling or correcting what God has previously given to his people. He's not interested in the appearance of honesty and keeping your word all the while believing it's not really, you know, a big deal to break your word. Jesus isn't interested in this appearance of being pious and trustworthy all the while internally paying no mind to God and holding no interest in keeping your word. He is bringing about this divine revolution of the heart, an internal transformation that changes the way that you live and think so that you begin to relate to others, yourself, to God, rightly. There's this integrity within what goes on inside of you and how you interact with others. And this is what Jesus has been describing throughout his whole Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus announces in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, the Sermon on the Mount begins to be this portrait, this picture he paints of, this is what it looks like when you repent. This is what it looks like when you begin to live life with me. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' picture of what happens when you repent and receive his good news, of how you live when the king grabs hold of your life. And it's not a portrait that you hang up on your wall. It's one that is painted through your life through everyday interactions with God and people. It's not static, it's actually living and dynamic. And so the first thing he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he talks about the kind of character that his people have through the Beatitudes. Then he outlines the kind of influence they'll have through talking about salt and light. But now he's talking about one of the ways the king grabs hold of the life through the words that they speak, through the way in which they conduct themselves and the commitments they make. And John, the gospel writer, he would say, this is the kind of people you become when you're born again. Paul, in his letters, would often talk about, this is the kind of people you become when the Holy Spirit moves in and takes over. Both of them are talking about that same reality. 
that Jesus Christ is alive and dynamically working in human lives. It's this kingdom righteousness that is greater than what my son's Jesus Storybook Bible calls like the extra holy perfect people. It's how they called the, the Pharisees. Here Jesus highlights this issue of oathing. And when Jesus says, do not make an oath, he's talking about legal oaths. Why does he do this? Why does Jesus take issue with this? Why is this the example that he uses to highlight a child, an issue with honesty? One, it's because oaths assume a world in which being honest must be promised. Oaths assume a world in which being honest must be promised. There's a slide for that. Uh, oaths are needed because the honesty is absent from the baseline assumption of how in, in relationships are supposed to operate. See, Jesus cared so much about honesty that he used this concrete and real-world example of a system in his time that established dishonesty. In Jesus' day, there was this entire system of scaled oaths, essentially scaled honesty. God's name was considered sacred, and the Israelites didn't want to risk using his name in vain. So they substituted words for God's name. They used other words instead. And those words were considered not as sacred as God's name. And so this created the scale where some words were closer to God's name and therefore more sacred, and other words were less. And depending what word you used, you could get away with not really having to hold to what you actually said. Created the system. You didn't actually have to be as true to your word. In fact, in Matthew... 23, Jesus confront, confronts the, the Pharisees. There's these seven woes that he goes through. And one of them, he, he's confronting them because their oaths had become an opportunity to scale back the obligation to what they had said. And so he uses all these examples. Now there's this New Testament scholar named Michael Green, and he explains what was going on like this. Describes, devised a variety of escape clauses from binding oaths. Any oath which succeeded in avoiding the name of God was not absolutely binding. One could swear by one's head, by Jerusalem, by heaven, by earth, and so on. God was thought of, not thought of as a partner in such a transaction. And so to break faith was not serious. Jesus is saying scaled honesty is counter to my kingdom. In my kingdom, my people are consistently honest, always honest, and therefore oaths are not needed. My people will be known as truth-tellers. The second reason I think Jesus confronts this is because oaths fail to see God is sovereign and present. Jesus is God, and God is Lord. He is king over all of creation. There's not one square inch of creation that doesn't belong to him. By him, through him, and for him, all things were created, Colossians talks about. Furthermore, God is always present, omnipresent. Making an oath by heaven or earth or by God's throne instead of God it does not escape a direct connection to God. It doesn't work like that. Any oath that touches on anything that he rules over makes that person that makes the oath accountable to God. And when you make an oath, your word matters. Jesus, what he wants to do here is show how ridiculous 
and essentially sinful this kind of attitude is. God is present, and you cannot live as if he does not see what you are doing or saying. He's here, and he is with us in everything that we do. This is his world that he created, and we're accountable to him for the words that we use. When you begin to scale things like this, it's like pretending that he's not actually there, that he doesn't actually see it, that you're not accountable. And Jesus is confronting that idea as wrong. You're not understanding reality when you live like this. We are accountable for the things that we commit to, the words that we say, the stories that we tell. And we may not scale our words the way that the scribes in the first century did, but we do scale truth-telling based on how costly it may be to us based on how much it may hurt to tell the truth, based on how, advantage it, how advantageous it would be to tell that. Jesus says, my people always tell the truth because they are already dwelling in my kingdom. They're already living under my reign. Reason number three, because more than anything, adding anything more than just a word is of evil origin. Jesus says, let your yes be your yes, your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And you'll see there's a little footnote on your Bible which says that it may say from the evil one. It's not entirely clear how that's supposed to be rendered. And this sounds really intense when you read this. You're like, what? Like, uh, it's not of good origin? Like, I, I was just making an oath. What is that about? Scaling of honesty, changing what you mean, manipulating words to convey half-truth but not everything. All of these point to something more sinister at work within us. And it's not totally clear here if Jesus is specifically speaking about Satan, the evil one, or if he's just talking about evil in general. But it could be that Jesus is saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And anything more than this comes from that devious serpent who twisted and manipulated God's word in the Garden of Eden. The evil one is a liar. Jesus calls Satan the father of all lies. There is no truth in him. And it's this kind of thinking that Jesus says, it's not from me. It doesn't originate from me. This is not who I am. This is not what I'm about. Therefore, my people that I'm forming into my image, they are not like that either. In my kingdom, my people won't play with words. They don't try to manipulate the truth. They don't live in half-truths. They know the one who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. They live in honesty with me, with others, and with themselves. But of course, when we hear this, we're like, okay, so how does that begin to work out in our lives? What are some of those things that, how do we do this? This doesn't really seem very easy. One thing I, need, I think we need to understand is that Jesus is not making an absolute prohibition against all oaths. And if you were, you'd have to try to make sense of other parts of the Bible. If you were against it, he'd be against God's way of dealing with our redemption. Because God himself makes oaths. God makes an oath in Genesis 22. He makes an oath in Exodus 6, in Isaiah 45, Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 73, and Acts chapter 2, verse 30 also highlight these oaths that God make. And I'll just read a couple of them to you. This is Genesis 22. 
The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And in Acts 2, verse 30, it says, But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. This is Peter referencing David about the promise that God had made to him. So there's these two examples where God has uh, made these oaths. If you read throughout the scripture, Abraham makes an oath. Paul appeals to God as his witness in his letters to the church in Rome, in Corinth, Galatia, and Philippi. What Jesus is against is legal oaths that have effectively distanced God from what we do and say. Because it's tearing how truthful you need to be when you create these types of legal oaths. So one of the things that we need to do, how we respond to this is, we must resist participating in systems that scale our obligation to our words and distance God from our words. And this might be harder than we first recognize. Because what Jesus has done through his example here in highlighting legal oaths is effectively said, the honesty I want my people to live with extends beyond the private realm into the legal world. And this is consistent with what Jesus has been teaching us on the Sermon on the Mount, when in Matthew 25, verse 25, he talks about reconciliation, about contempt, right? And how we become a people of reconciliation. And he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. That's that same outworking of something of the reconciliation you experience with God and becoming a people who pursue reconciliation with others, and it extends out into situations of court. As you seek reconciliation in a legal situation, you practice simple honesty in those situations. And we still see oaths in our courts today, and even our neighbors down south, people have had to testify and make an oath before they testify when you see all that's going on in, uh, in U.S. politics. And we're aware of that in our own political system here when you have to testify. And if you ever watched a movie, you've seen this too, right? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God, right? We've seen that in pop culture. Those are examples. And those are, there are oaths like that that we see. And the underlying assumption is that you are now swearing these words as honest and truthful when you do that, assuming that in general, you can't really be trusted to be truthful or honest, but just in this moment, you're promising you're going to be totally honest. There's this inconsistency with what Jesus says his people are supposed to be like. That's why he's calling that out. And therefore, I think for disciples of Jesus, if we're in those situations, I would like advise followers of Jesus, to tell judges in those situations who require them to take an oath, that swearing to tell the truth and the whole truth, like that, that they're actually bound by Jesus not to use oaths because their words are honest. This is us choosing not to participate in systems where dishonesty is systemic. We're not going to participate in that way. 
And third, I think we must pursue simple honesty with God, yourself, and others. Simp let what you say simply be yes or no. This is the honesty we are called to live with in our ordinary moments of life. Honesty with God about our feelings, about our desires, our struggles, our discouragements, about His Lordship. The importance of honesty starts at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You can't separate it from what He's talking about here. Jesus starts by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are honest about their dependency on God and how broken they really are. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't separate it. You receive the kingdom when you actually begin to recognize and look at yourself honestly and him honestly. He sees you as you truly are. And he does not treat you on the basis of what you've done or even how well or poorly you've lived up to your promises but on the basis of his love. And when you get this, when you really understand this, it changes you. You don't stay the same. And you become increasingly able to be honest with yourself. Honest with yourself about those same very things. Your, what you're discouraged by, your failures, your struggles, your, uh, his lordship, your feelings, the different things in your life, how you're really doing. And not just in one moment, but more regularly, becomes a, a way of understanding and seeing where you're really at. See, his love enables you to accept and love yourself despite these failures and weaknesses. And you can be honest with others, telling them how you're doing, not pretending to be someone you're not, to impress them, not trying to make ourselves look stronger or wiser, smarter than we really are. You're you. In John chapter 4, it records this encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at a well in the afternoon. And if you don't know uh, the context at that time, people didn't go to get water in the afternoon because it was the hottest time of the day. The woman intentionally chose to go there because she knew fewer people would be there. See, within her, her town, she would have been ostracized because of the way that she lived her lifestyle choices. But Jesus, you got to love Jesus, he, he is intentionally there at that time. And when she comes, rather than leave or avoid interacting with a woman as probably would have been the norm at that time, Jesus actually chooses to engage with her. He breaks all kinds of social norms doing this, asking for water and and then actually offering her water. water. A water that is different than what is in the well before them. A water that would completely transform and renew her. He says to her in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty. I don't have to keep coming here to draw this water. But he told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. And the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. 
She goes on to say, I perceive you're a prophet, which is mostly right. I mean, there's more to Jesus than that. But she understands that Jesus actually sees what's going on in her life. He, she has not told him her life, her struggles, any of the things that she may feel ashamed of, none of that stuff. Jesus knows it, has willingly engaged with her, and is offering her this water that will fully quench her thirst for life. Then he goes on to say in verse 23, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The spot, the, God, God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I, the one speaking to you, am He. Now notice the progression here that the Christ has come to this woman who is not living in line with what God intends, but he does not reject her. He doesn't say, you cannot associate with me. He says, I want to be with you, but we have to be honest with one another. And when he brings up the truth, she does not deny it. She stays engaged with him, and he continues to talk to her about truth, that my people will worship in spirit and in truth. She doesn't run away from him. He actually he shows her grace and truth in the same conversation. See, the life that Jesus wants for his people is a life of honesty with him. And when you're honest, he will not cast you out. He will not reject you. This is the pathway to Jesus and his kingdom. He doesn't treat you on the basis of what you've done or how well or poorly you've lived up to your promises, but on the basis of his love. And when you and I get this, it will change us. And you see that in this woman, because when you read on in the story, you see that she ends up running to her town and telling this people about Jesus. In verse 39, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So the Samaritans came to Jesus, and they urged Jesus to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of Jesus' word, many more became believers. What happened with the Samaritan woman happened to the town, which was that people encountered God's truth and his grace in Jesus, and it changed them. They couldn't stay the same. The things that you and I try to hide in our lives that we feel shame about because like, oh, I, I've been following Jesus for this long. How could I possibly have done this? The things that, we, uh, that maybe we're just learning to follow Jesus and we feel shame about in our past, all those things, when, you need to understand, when, Jesus, when you bring them to him, when you confess them, when you live honestly with him, he does not cast you out. He does not cast you out. He's come to bring life and life to the full. And when you do this, when you take him at his word, when you see who he is and believe that that's how he will treat you, it changes you. It changes the way you live with him, with yourself, and with others. And it happens and shows up in really simple, ordinary ways in life. Just let me give you some examples. You'll damage a car in a parking lot, and you'll leave a note with your contact information so they can follow up with you so that you guys can make it right. You'll share some really interesting information or an argument that you've heard really, that's really compelling, 
and you'll actually cite the sources you've drawn from, not pretending it's just your idea, that you're really smart, really creative. You will honor the deal you agreed to, even though there's a better one that has come up afterwards, because you said you would do that deal. You will work the hours you're paid for. You will follow through on what you've promised, even though it's a lot harder than you expected. You will confess when you've gotten it wrong and you actually weren't able to fulfill what you had said you would. You'll confess it to God. You'll confess it to others. You will admit you're struggling and you need help. Because Jesus' people are known for their truthfulness. They don't live in lies. They live in the truth. Because God cares about truth and he wants his people to come and worship him in spirit and in truth. And because when you do this, you are dwelling in the reality that he really is with you in, in everything that you do. Now look, there's not a single one of us in this room who has not bent the truth, like embraced the half-truth, flat-out lied. There's no pretending. We can't pretend like we've gotten this perfectly right. And if you hear it as if Jesus is saying you must be perfect in this way, you're failing to understand that Jesus is saying this is what happens when you come to me and I grab hold of your life, when you come into contact with me. This is what he wants for us. And this is a work that he does in us. And so his spirit, the Holy Spirit, begins to call us to truth, to live with integrity. And there are times where you and I will actually feel this intense conviction. We feel unsettled. We don't feel at peace. It bothers us. And what we do in that moment, how we respond to that conviction is so important. Because one response for you and I is to be like, oh, how do I occupy my mind so that I don't think about that and feel that anymore? Oh, this is just, this is just a negative accusation or whatever, and we just dismiss it because we just don't like the feeling or whatever. But there is an invitation by the Spirit to actually entertain what's going on and be like, Lord, what is going on here? What is it that you want me to see here? How can I actually live honestly with you here? And what is the truth that you want me to know? And so rather than rejecting that feeling, God can use those feelings to actually have us be aware that something is off, something needs to be addressed. It's recognizing it and acknowledging it and saying, Lord, what is it that you want to do? What is it that you want me to know here? What is it that I know about scriptures that tell me about what you want for my life? There's an invitation then when we experience conviction to actually move towards him, not away from him. This is, this is, look, this is the difference between Genesis 3 and what is now possible for you and I. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, humanity's representatives, rebel, and they feel shame, and they pull away, and they hide. In Christ, we know that now we have access to God the Father by the Spirit. That there is nothing there is no condemnation in christ when we put our trust in him and so we will get it wrong but we don't have to respond like adam and eve do in that one moment we have another opportunity to turn towards him 
to not run and hide, but to turn towards him, honestly acknowledging the things that we've gotten wrong, and know that he will not treat us with wrath, but with grace. And you know what? Communion reminds us of 